Welcome to the Education of a Financial Planner, where we look at the major concepts in financial planning through the lens of two quant investors who are learning the ropes of the planning process and how to help clients achieve their long-term goals. Learn along with us as experienced financial planner Matt Ziegler helps us understand the most important financial planning concepts that impact all of us and how we can apply them to achieve the best outcomes in our financial lives. In each episode, we will work through one major financial planning concept from the ground up and learn how we can apply it in the real world. From retirement to college savings to taxes to estate planning, we will cover a wide range of topics that apply to each of our everyday lives. We hope you will join us in our learning journey. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at the Lydia Capital Management. Matt Ziegler is Managing Director at Sunpoint Investments. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital or Sunpoint Investments. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital or Sunpoint Investments. All right, guys, today we're going to do something a little bit different. Um, and what we wanted to do, rather than focusing in on a specific financial planning topic or theme, uh, we wanted to kind of work through some of the questions we've been getting from our clients and those that we're talking to. I wrote an article uh, a few days ago and I had a question come in. I talked to a few of my clients, a few of our clients, and there's a, a few different things that I think are on investors' minds. And some of the things we're going to talk about today are going to be related to, to you know, what, what they've been asking and or what we know that investors are feeling because of what's going on in the market and the economy um, today and so far this year. And so the first thing that we wanted to tackle, and I've had this probably come up three or four times, is this idea of given where rates are, especially short-term rates, I think they're up over 5%. So you can buy two-year treasury and get a 5% yield on that. That's you know the highest it's been, maybe not in the last 20 years, but something like that, maybe going back to 06 or uh, 07. And so a lot of investors were sort of just asking themselves, you know, would I be better off, you know, if, I, if I'm investing in something that's like a low risk investment strategy, something that's gonna give me maybe five, six, 7%, maybe on the high end, but has some type of variability, would I be better off just taking that money or any money I have really and placing that into short-term bonds and locking in the 5%. And, you know, Jack, you and I have kind of discussed this, but I think that's where we want to start the conversation today is around how one might want to think about the decisions or the set of decisions that go into that. Cause it, it's just not that easy. It's not like you said it and it's done. There's a series of things that, you know, an investor would want to think about. And so let's sort of start there and then we'll get into some of these other topics. Okay. Yeah. So I've actually been talking to my dad about this because he was basically, why don't I just put all my money in six month T-bills? Um, you know, that makes a lot of sense. You know, I've got 5% return or whatever. Why wouldn't I do that? And so there's, there's a couple of things I would say to that. And, you know, Matt will have a much better answer from a planning perspective. One is you have to understand there, there is sort of a reinvestment risk here. Um, you know, you're, if you're putting money in six months T-bills, in six months, you got to do something else. And rates may stay high and you may just be able to continue doing that. But if rates adjust over time, you're not like locking in some long-term return by buying 5% T-bills right now. Eventually that situation might change. Um, and the second thing for me is, you know, and Justin and I were talking about this, we were talking about it with our client is we don't know what the market's going to do. And, you know, the, the market, just because we have a lot of uncertainty and because we have high inflation, doesn't mean the market's for sure going to have some terrible return. And so... A lot of times in some of the most uncertain, terrible times where you think things are horrible, you get some of the best returns in the market. And I'm not saying we're going to have that now because we're in a little different situation than 2008 right now or the, or the bottom in 2009 and the stocks aren't as cheap. Um, we have inflation. We, we have some other problems here, but it's just, you know, it, it unlocks a series of decisions that are very challenging when you make a decision like that. When you go into short term bonds, if you're wrong and stocks start going up, now what do I do? Most people will not chase the returns. They'll say, I'm staying in here. I'm waiting for the pullback. And it just never comes. And so it's just a really, really hard thing to do behaviorally to say, I'm going to go to short-term bonds. So my, my only thing would be, if, if I don't think it's a great idea. And, and if you're going to do it, you, I think you have to have some sort of systematic process as to how you're going to unwind that at some point in the future, assuming you know, you're, you're not just going to be in short-term bonds forever. So Matt, you may have some better insights than that. I, so this goes back to something we've talked about a lot. Once you've done like the planning process, then you set up some version across whatever the range of account types and asset types that you have 
of your policy portfolio. And that policy portfolio, by looking at your expected returns, your variance, your risk assumptions, and your correlation assumptions mapped against your cash flow needs for either consumption or gifts down the road, see all the other episodes where we dive into this stuff, allocation, tax location, goals-based budgeting and planning. When you have that policy portfolio, you don't go chasing into short-term bonds unless that's going to make your life easier to fund something in the short-term, neutralizing what the unknowns are. And Jack, you just did a great job listing out the unknowns. Like, do you know what the inflation rate is? Do you know what your reinvestment risk is? Do you know what decision you're setting up for yourself in six months? For clients who already have money in cash, money market, or whatever else, uh, or that roll short-term CDs as part of their policy portfolio, for the last year and change, it's been all about being in a money market or short-term T-bills and rolling them over. When they feel like the Fed or we say, hey, we think the Fed is paused or it's worth locking these in, usually they're short-term CDs. So if part of your allocation is short-term stuff, at some point here, maybe in the next this month or in six months, you might go like, oh, let's lock in for a year or three years. But the reality of the math is have a policy portfolio know what your assumptions are, and then to the degree you want to tinker, you can talk about how position sizing accomplishes that. On the, on like the alt space, like, do you guys have any comments on that? Like, um, taking away, like if you fed into alternatives in like a ZERP world, zero interest rate policy world, should you be now like rotating back into that? Do you guys ever deal with that stuff? This is the conversation our investment committee keeps having. We don't do we, we don't do a ton with alternatives. Um, you know, I, I've definitely come around a lot. I mean, as, as you I know you listen to our show as your portfolio episodes and, you know, with these sophisticated investors we talk to, pretty much all of them are using some sort of alternatives to go with stocks and bonds. I mean, we've had like maybe one guy on that has just stocks and bonds. So I'm, I'm a big believer that you can use alternatives to create a more efficient, you know, better risk adjusted return investing portfolio. But like, I don't have any thoughts on like how they are, you know, at, at any given time. I think on this one, it really goes back to, you know, what are the investor's goals? If you're a long-term investor, if you have a long-term time horizon on the money and, you know, you're asking yourself, should I take part of that portfolio or all of that portfolio and put it into short-term bonds, you know, that would be a disconnect from uh, sort of what you're, I think, trying to accomplish. Um, if you want to try to grow your wealth and, and maximize your wealth and compound it over time for some of the reasons that we've, we've talked about here. So, you know, it kind of goes back to that goals-based planning episode we talked about and sort of what you just highlighted, Matt, which is, you know, having that policy portfolio, having those different tranches of the portfolio set up. If you need the money in the short run, then short-term bonds might be a great alternative versus whatever else you're doing now. But if you're, you know, have a five, seven, 10 year time horizon, you know, like Jack pointed out, you're going to have to make the decision at some point to then switch out of those bonds, most likely. And, you know, who knows, that's going to be a, a timing decision you're going to have to make. And that could, you know, be a difficult one at the time. So anyways, the point is, is that just try to align the strategy with the goals, I think, is the best thing for most people. What you're moving from and to is one of the most important conversations here. And just the other part of the policy portfolio is like, it's if you're rebalancing, it's always what you're selling versus what you're buying relative to one another. So what am I moving from? What am I moving to? If I came into the year with the mag seven stocks, like super long, and I have all these crazy profits and a bunch of tech names, or I got any of those, right. If you got any of the mag seven, right in your portfolio, and now you're like, and you're a pre-retiree or you just retired and you want to take some of those profits and put it in a money market or short-term bonds. Cause you just went, holy crap, this 400, 700% return now gives me the next one, three, five years, whatever of retirement. Like, yeah, go from that to that in your rebalancing act. But if you're trying to figure out, should I go from my, uh, like Barclay or my Lehman Barclays ag, whatever, whatever the ag is called these days fund into, um, short term, have the from to conversation, really think about what those trade-offs are against your policy portfolio, against your goals. I think, you know, this, this also gets to the behavioral part of creating a financial plan. I think a lot of times when people create a financial plan, they don't realize like the extremes they might see that'll test the financial plan. And so like if, if you put a financial plan together for somebody in 2019, you know, what are the odds they're thinking about 5% plus short-term rates, you know, being able to get that was something they were going to be facing in terms of a decision or like the kind of inflation we're seeing. And so 
I think behaviorally, sometimes people get tested a little more than they think. And that, that gets at Justin's question of people wanting to shift all the way to short-term bonds because I don't think they envision, you know, they envision, oh yeah, like a small adjustment here and there. I'm, I'm not going to deviate from my plan, but they didn't envision having this type of decision. You know, I can get 5% short-term. Yeah. And the wackier stuff gets, the more people want to tinker, right? Like this is also the really tricky part because it's like, oh my God, 5% inflation, I should do something. Oh my God, 5% treasury bill or uh, money market rates, I should do something. Oh my God. And, and most of the time when those things are happening, you're experiencing some form of an outlier and the, the, like the endpoint ideas are not what you should be focused on. You should be focused on if there's something like way more narrow that leads you back to your policy portfolio. Maybe you got a gift of an opportunity to now achieve a goal faster. Um, that context, that's really the important thing. Whenever we get large variants or large departures from our base case or our assumptions, we should be looking at what's the from and to with this that we should respond, be responsive to around usually like some very specific goals. So Matt, another one I've seen on Twitter, and I want to ask you about this, is this idea of, well, now that we, especially now that long-term rates have come up a bunch, you know, I, I've got a 4%, you know, I'm withdrawing 4% of my portfolio pretty much across the spectrum now I can get more than 4%, you know, as I go out the duration curve, why don't I just make a laddered bond portfolio that gives me more than 4%? Why don't I just invest in that? Yeah, it's a great idea. I think you should do exactly that as your financial advisor. <laughs> oh, wait, 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 wait. Um, can you just tell me what the inflation rate is for your retirement period? Yeah, well, I mean, well, first of all, I don't know what it is, but uh, it's definitely higher than it was before. Okay. Uh, is Does that lead to any problem with the rate of return on your fancy laddered bond portfolio that you just proposed? Well, I don't think my coupons are going up with the inflation rate, if, if I'm correct about that. Oh, oh, maybe we should reconnect. It's <laughs> like, this is the trade-off. Yeah, you can lock it in, but that's the 4% rule works to the degree it works in the future, which no guarantee of future results. It only works in the future to the degree that you have stuff that can be responsive to all the scenarios. The point Justin just made was perfect along this. More things can happen than will happen. Full stop. So if you decide to ladder bonds out because yields are good, and oh, by the way, there's a little bit of a problem when on the short end, I can get like five and a half and on the long end, I can still get, I can't get to five yet. Um, <laughs> so that's a challenge. Now you might have a shorter term view. You might do like a tips ladder to meet some goals. If you think inflation's being stubborn or going back up, there's some compelling smaller solutions for liability matching, liability driven investing, a term from the pensions world where we actually look at forward liabilities and match debt up to that. But that's always a smaller piece in the context. You don't want to take everything and probably lock it up in bonds unless your cash flow is so much greater than your expected expense, even under a rampant inflation environment. Because, I mean, play that out. Go ahead, play it out for yourself. You lock in at five. What's the scenario that blows you up 10 years, 20 years down the road? If I lock in what, with long-term bonds? Let's say you do the latter. You lock in, you got your reinvestment risk, you got whatever else. What blows you up in your plan uh, as, as you're trying to get through life in the next, well, you, you got more than 20 years of retirement in front of you here, I hope, Jack. Well, I mean, I would think high inflation would be a big issue for me, right? Wouldn't that be one thing that would blow me up? And it could come up in a bunch of different places, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it's, you don't know the variables, that variance will kill you if you lock that in on, on debt and exclusively that. And that's, I think that that's the answer. And I think the, the other thing to keep in mind too, is a lot of people are trying to build, they're not just trying to like create just what they need for their spending with their portfolio. And that's it. Like a lot of people want to build a portfolio that they can leave to other people or do something with, you know, that goes beyond them. And so if you're taking like those growth assets out of there, you know, you may not be accomplishing what you want to accomplish in terms of, you know, just trying to like ladder bonds to barely meet your obligations. And, and you kind of showed why you probably won't meet your obligations anyway. But like that, I think that's also a major flaw in that approach. 100%. And now there is like, so if you know, like liability driven investing works when we know what the liability is. That's why pensions do it where they're like, we know we have to pay out or an endowment. I know I have to pay out three, four, 5%, whatever your assumptions are that are going into your particular rules, policy portfolio and everything else. So if you know what your liability is and there's not an inflation kicker, you can do this. Literally just had a client where there was a home purchase and the home purchase could have been done with cash. Uh, but at this point, the rate where it was locked in, because it, it, 
a little bit more complicated. The home was purchased. The financing was secured when rates were still low about a year ago. And so now that the second property has come and that was supposed to go and pay down the other, but there's an arbitrage here where it's like, well, now we have this pile of cash that can earn five and change. And we've got a mortgage that costs like two and a half. We'll pay off the mortgage, but for now, why don't we just park it in a money market or CDs or treasuries, get the higher yield, play the arbitrage against the liability that is the mortgage. And then when these things flip, if rates go back down, then we'll just turn around and lop off the mortgage. But like the cost to carry is a benefit here that the real estate's theoretically an appreciating asset. You have to have a specific reason to do this stuff. So relating to this, Ben Carlson from Ritholtz Wealth wrote an article just yesterday. And the article was about looking at the, the future returns or the forward returns of the stock market under different interest rate and inflation regimes. So he had two tables in there, which are very powerful. And I'm going to ask you guys sort of a question here and see how you respond. So he had you know, inflation and interest rates between zero and 2%, two and 4%, four and 6%, six to 8%, and then 8% or higher. So he had five different interest rate and inflation, uh, you know, starting points, if you will. And then he looked at the future returns of the stock market for one year, five years, 10 years, and 20 years. So what category of rates and inflation do you think the market did best? Do you, would you think it would do best when rates and inflation were very low or when rates and inflation were very high? I have to uh, ask, ask a confirming, uh, clarifying question first. Sure. Was, it, was the answer different for the short term, like one year returns than it was for the longer term 20 year returns? Or was it the same? Uh, it, was, it was split down the middle. So it was better. Uh, it was is the answer always the same or is it, is it vary based on, it varied, right? I assume it varied, but when you look at the five, 10 and 20 year figures, it doesn't vary. Yeah. Once you get longer term, it right. doesn't vary. Yeah. I mean, my guess would be, and I'm probably going to be wrong about this. But my guess would be in some of the worst inflation environments, you might get better returns because inflation tends to come back down. Um, that would be my guess, but I, I could be totally wrong about that because now as we're getting to longer term returns, we're not as worried about the kind of stuff we're worried about right now. It, it goes more to the future. So that would be my guess. Matt, what would yours be? Yeah, I, I would actually, so I take the other side, but I'm also saying lower rates and lower inflation. We've had such like lumpy returns. And if I think about the extended positive returns period, haven't they mostly been in modest to lower or falling inflation? Yeah, I mean, I Go think ahead. you're- both, I haven't, I haven't both, seen the no, piece. <laughs> yeah, both your, your thoughts, I think are, are, you know, make sense and logical, but you have to kind of think about it in a historical context. So the, the times in the, in, in the, that we've had 8% or higher inflation in rates came after the 1940s and World War II, and they also came after the 1970s. So you had two- massive bull markets that were largely driven by, even though we were coming off of periods of high inflation, I think we had very low valuations as well. Right. So that right, was right. part of the, that's part of the picture that, you know, he didn't really, he pointed that out in the article, but the, and I, maybe, maybe I'll ask Ben if we can put the charts in because they're the, 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 the probably most important point is when you look at over all these different periods out one year, out five years, out 10 years, the returns are still very strong and positive in, in most cases. And so, but you know, my, I, I would have said what you guys said is, you know, you wouldn't think after periods of super high inflation, you would get the best returns over the next year, five years, 10 years, but it has to do with like the context of the situation in the market coming in the, in the 1940s. I know, you know, most people were very negative on stocks. You had like 20 years of starting with a great depression of stocks being horrible. And then in the seventies too, you had basically a lost decade. So the 50s were great for, for the stock market and the 1980s to the late 90s really were great too. So that's why those numbers, I think, are largely so did I, um, influenced. So it was, so I got, did I get it right? Was It was the yes. highest, it was yeah. the highest inflation? Nice. Exactly. So I get a prize of any kind or? Uh... I'll give you, your, well, that, that te the tuxedo t-shirt's on its way. 
Oh, okay, yeah. Well, I'll wear that as soon as as soon as it arrives. I'll, I'll wear that in the next uh, the next podcast we do. I, I have to pay for it because I lost the uh, challenge. But I, but we should also say too, this is where it's like single variable analysis is always going to fail you. Uh, multiple variable analysis gets really hard. There's that three body problem thing, and when we look at all those periods and you look historically, we can mine out. And I'm not saying Ben was not doing this. Uh, he's I, I'm really excited now to go read this piece. Meb Faber used to do this and show it, I think, on the sector level too for valuations and inflation and rates. And it's it's really interesting to look at this stuff and think about it. But there's so many other variables at play in each right. of those that to think that they're predictive of the current thing. I always go back to like, especially with thinking about like rates and inflation and stuff like that. It's like, this is why we buy stocks. This is why stocks are where they are in the risk curve. They represent equity ownership in something, in a business where somebody has to like pay somebody's salary and deal with input costs with the desire to earn a profit. And McDonald's works maybe over the longest, not, not a McDonald's pitch, as an inflation hedge because somebody figured out how to turn the lights on the next day and sell another chicken nugget profitably, right? So it's like for all these things and all these variables, this is where stocks are on the risk curve. And that's why you get positive returns over three, five, 10 plus year periods. Was, wasn't it Ray Dalio who figured out how to sell the chicken nuggets profitably or? Facts, man. Right. Or hedge, facts, man. Hedge chicken prices. <laughs> how to hedge the cost, right? It's, it's in one of our episodes. <laughs> you can find the link in the story. Yeah. But that's a good point, Matt, because I mean, you know, after those periods, like we just the valuations were much lower than they are today. You know, we're in a period where we have high inflation, higher rates, and, you know, valuations aren't necessarily cheap um, on a broad market level. I mean, you could find pockets maybe where there's more attractive valuations than others. But after the 40s and, and the 70s, you know, you had maybe even single digit or low, low double digit digit PEs on the yeah. market and that kind of created and you can't overlook like exactly and you can't overlook the other craziness it's like when what population of the American working force was like male employed by the military and then what portion of them came back from World War II like there's all these other trends that influence this around labor around capital around what the balance is and that's where it makes it hard to pull out of these historical examples and say like oh it rhymes with this it's like there's a lot of variables at play here I want to talk about labor in a minute, but before we um, go there, I just wanted to get your thoughts on uh, how you guys are thinking about international sort of investing or allocations or, or valuations. You know, I think I've been probably for 10 years saying like, you know, international stocks look cheap and, you know, investors should be diversifying into international. I've done that personally um, with my personal investments with my kids 529 plans, and that's not done well or not served me well, at least up to this point, but um, I'm trying to take a long-term perspective on it. You know, Jack and I have had, I think it's a, what probably one of the more common questions we ask a lot of people that come on the podcast and do the show us your portfolio because people kind of open up their portfolios and, you know, everyone largely provides like different answers to this. Um, but what do you guys, you guys have any thoughts just generally about, sort of the attractiveness of international stocks and, and I guess why they might make sense for someone's portfolio today. Jack, yeah, I'm answering this first because I'm answering with a joke and then you're going to give the actual serious answer to the question. I got it. <laughs> you're, you're familiar with the comedian uh, Henny Youngman? Do you know him? This is, this is I, I've heard the name, but yeah, I'm not, I can't like put a base to it. Okay, he's, he's old school. So uh, look, look up later, but he told the classic joke. Uh, so how's your wife? And do you know the punchline of the joke? So how's your wife? Imagine an old Yiddish comedian. I don't think I know it. <laughs> so how's... It's embarrassing. You know, Justin? <laughs> I would say she's great. <laughs> <laughs> so the answer would be compared to what? Oh, I see. <laughs> and yeah, again, old Yiddish comedian. And like, you know, uh, take my wife, please. He's got a bunch of these horrible classics. But... Like the valuation discount with uh, emerging markets, with international stocks. It's like, well, how's this look? The compared to what question is probably the most important question we can ask. And I hope your kids 529s make a stellar recovery. I'm sure they will. I believe in mean reversion. But Jack, what say ye? Tell me about yeah. this crazy discount and why it's been so friggin' frustrating for all of us <laughs> that think about this stuff for a decade yeah, well now. 
the second part I struggle with, but the first part about the crazy discount, I mean, that is absolutely true. You know, we had Dan Villalon on excess returns from AQR. And, you know, if you look at the data, I mean, emerging market stocks are, you know, in single digit percentiles in terms of how cheap they are relative to the U.S. Um, and then when you add emerging market and value together, it's like 1%. It's like all time levels of cheapness. But to your point, that's meant nothing. You know, it's, it's been very cheap for a long time and it's meant nothing. And, you know, I think a lot of this, this is the same thing with value investing and everything else we do. It all comes down to your time frame and what you're judging yourself against. So I don't think, I do think emerging market stocks and international stocks are very cheap, but I think a lot of investors probably shouldn't do anything about that. Because ultimately, if they're judging themselves against the S&P 500, if they're judging themselves against U.S. stocks, they're going to make a behavioral mistake when it doesn't work and they're going to abandon it at the wrong time. And so I think there's a great opportunity in emerging market stocks. I think all these guys, you know, AQR, when they did their research, I mean, they adjusted for everything because some people argue, well, the sector composition of emerging markets are very different than the U.S. So that justifies a discount. And that's true. But even after you adjust for that, they're still cheap. So they did a series and I'm not going to go through it all, but they did a series of adjusting for everything you could conceivably adjust for. and still. You know, emerging market stocks are really, really cheap. So there probably is a great long-term opportunity, but that doesn't mean we're not going to get another five years or another decade like we have where they continue to struggle. And, you know, most investors just can't, they can't deal with that. They're going to see, if they see the U.S. outperforming, they just, the U.S. is the benchmark for most people and they can't, they can't deal with it. So I don't think most people should do anything about it. The other thing that's hard to predict too is, you know, the dollar has been super strong. And, you know, if you're, a U.S.-based investor and you're, the dollar is appreciating relative to other currencies and you're buying assets of companies that are doing most of their business in other countries and other currencies, you know, you kind of have that headwind going against you. Um, but it can also play like the other way. And I think I'm, I'm a little bit like early in my investing career, you know, international had a really great run from, it was like kind of like 2000 to like 2006. Remember the BRICS? Um, you had the bricks and the lost decade for U.S. stocks, 2000 to 2010. All those things went up. U.S. Right. small value bricks, like you got a point. And, and historically, when you look at, you know, there's definitely this cyclicality. It's just to your point, Jack, the timing of that is pretty much impossible. And the valuation thing doesn't mean that it's, you know, you can't you can't time the valuation. And in a in a policy portfolio, if you have these things, like if you're, if the portfolio is being used to fund consumption, so you're reti you retired a few years ago and you've been getting on with this. If you still have the international or the emerging allocation, but you've been taking withdrawals or distributions to pay for stuff, well, guess what? You've had above average performance out of US stocks for these periods. So like you've been able to fund those goals out of the outperformance of one thing without having to touch or maybe even rebalancing into this stuff that struggled. And we know the point you just made, that 2000 to basically 2010, you can even go with the financial crisis in this. Having that international piece was the difference between the S&P round tripping to zero over that period mm -hmm. of time and having a really healthy positive return for having this in your portfolio. So diversification in the policy portfolio works really well when you're funding consumption or just as a rebalancing strategy. This next one might be more of a topic for breaking news. So you guys got to plug for the other podcast that you guys do. Um, but, and I don't know what you think about this. I mean, I feel like every day you're hearing about or seeing, you know, a large organization or institution go on strike. So, you know, it kind of started, and I don't even know, this probably isn't like the full list, but, you know, you had the UPS drivers, they were going to shut down. It may even go back further. It may have, it may, and COVID may have been the catalyst here in some weird way because you had frontline workers, healthcare workers, obviously pilot, the, the, the organizations that stayed operational where those employees felt like they were taking some risk and they were at the time, you know, servicing consumers or doing their jobs. Um, you know, that may be, that might have, have kicked off this sort of thing where people feeling like underappreciated about their jobs, underpaid. Um, but, you know, it's, it sort of started with the airlines, I think, UPS. Obviously, the UAW is in negotiations right now. You had the writer's strike, which was in, in Hollywood and filmmakers. That was a little bit more chat GPT and AI. Um, I think Kaiser Permanente out in California, which is a big healthcare organization, is striking. So I don't know. You know, this is... I sort of feel like, and that maybe this is some like of the fourth turning stuff coming kind of full circle here. I mean, you might be able to 
comment on that a little bit more than me because I haven't read the, the book completely. But I'm just sort of trying to think through too, like what the economic and investing implications of that might be, particularly in a period where we're have high inflation and prices seem to be going up. They're very expensive for a lot of things and, and sort of how that plays out. We'll all invoke the poet philosopher Bill Withers first and uh, quote him with, ain't no sunshine when she's gone. Sunshine here being liquidity and in all these markets and with all these jobs, inflation, wage pressure, all that stuff, that liquidity when it goes out is a real problem. And I think he did a good job lobbying. You can come on and be the resident expert on all these strikes and wage pressure things for breaking news. Please come do that. It's a confounding problem, but, but it's real and we're facing it. And I think, well, I'm going to pause for a second. Jack, anything to add to that? And I, I think we should talk about it from a financial planning standpoint, like knowing the industry you're in right now is really, really important, but any other thoughts on just wage pressures and this stuff? Yeah, no, I mean, we're, we're definitely seeing a shift towards labor away from capital. Um, you know, and that's what you'd expect in this type of environment we're in and, you know, in this type of political environment and this type of inflationary environment. I mean, that's, that's where we're headed now. You know, what I always try to do from an investing standpoint, that's the harder part about this is, you know, what do I do with my portfolio? And, you know, I'm a big believer. You, you guys probably realize I say the same thing over and over and over again in this podcast, which is it's all about expectations relative to reality. So a lot of that stuff I just talked about, there's expectations that exist in the market about how that's going to happen. And so can I have a differing opinion from those expectations and can I be right? Um, and so I don't really like think there's many major changes you can make to a portfolio about this. I mean, I, th I think there's, you know, that's what we talk about in our other podcast. There's a lot of implications for the world um, and for what we're all going to be going through probably because of what's happening here. But like in terms of an investment portfolio, I mean, I don't know. I mean, this is certainly a move from capital labor is inflationary. I mean, that, that's what it is. So, you know, you're, you're going to expect to probably see higher inflation, but can I do a better job of figuring that, uh, that expectation relative to the market? I'm not really sure. At the portfolio level, I think the only thing you can do is just know that in Consumer products and healthcare, those are two of your historically, according to S&P, your highest default risk sectors. So whether you work for a company, like understanding if your company's highly levered or not, or if you're looking at industries, you're looking at portfolios, be aware of where we are in the leverage cycle. Be aware of liquidity. Defaults are a little bit coming up here, but you got to understand where they are, why they're occurring. And probably the easiest thing, very AQR lesson you know, mind your junk, look for the stuff that's got liquidity risk, because if you got a bunch of people asking and the unions are coming for higher salaries and whatever else, and there's the cash flow is not there to do it, you got a labor contract, like default risk is there. There's a reason consumer products and healthcare are at the top of the default risk spectrum in the US. Figure out what you need to avoid more so than what you can probably take advantage of from a portfolio standpoint. And the other thing I would say from a portfolio standpoint is understand what's happened over the full course of history. Right. So, you know, we got trapped over like a 30 year period of realizing, you know, stocks and bonds were negatively correlated. And, you know, this isn't any recommendation or anything, but there are a lot of what's going on in the ETF market right now. There are many alternative type strategies that go beyond stocks and bonds that spread to more assets, to more of the assets that exist and not just stocks and bonds that are very intelligently put together that can make sense in certain situations now. You know, we've all got this idea from 30 years that, you know, I build my portfolio with stocks and bonds and I do absolutely nothing else. And, you know, I think all of us have to challenge that idea. And I would, I would definitely recommend people listen to some of our Show Us Your Portfolio episodes with people who do that. I mean, we did Andy Constant recently. We've done a lot of people who really think about this. Adam Butler was another one, like, who think about this really thoughtfully. And I think that's something to consider just because if, if we put all of our eggs in this 30-year basket, you know, we may see a very different world going forward. Well, thank you guys for bringing it back to the, uh, sort of portfolio level. The only other thing I just want to say on this is, you know, I, I do think when you think about higher wages, you know, deglobalization, onshoring, to your point, Jack, you know, it, it sort of is, those are things that are going to keep inflation higher rather than lower. And, you know, thinking that the Fed controls with rates, all this stuff is, might not be the case. I mean, I don't really think the, you know, the auto workers on strike, you know, has, has nothing to do with, with the Fed really. And so, you know, I think the market and the narrative and people talk about, oh, the Fed is going to do this, the Fed's going to do that. But, you know, when thinking about what some of the other drivers of inflation, it just might be important to think that the Fed isn't the only game in town here. And there's a lot of other 
sort of external pressures that can put prices on things um, that people need to buy day in and day Which out. Is a, so. And that's a huge point in like, don't just watch the Fed, watch the default cycle. Like look at the, if you're going to look at labor statistics, like dive into like where what's happening because it's just as important, if not as important. And it's critical if you want to try to have a macro understanding of what's going on because the auto workers may not be tied to the Fed, but they're certainly going to be tied to default risk across those sectors. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, if you look at the three main drivers of, you know, the sort of the low inflation we had, you know, you've got technology, you've got globalization, and then you've got demographics is what people usually cite. And, you know, technology will remain a deflationary force. Globalization seems to be going the other direction now, um, you know, especially in the wake of COVID. Everybody's like, you know, I got I to gotta do stuff on my own shores here. Um, I got to be not dependent on these other countries. And demographics is what it is. So it's like, it just, it shows how hard it is to predict. I mean, we got stuff moving in different directions. It could go, it could go in many, many different directions. And you know, all this AI stuff also like changes this, potentially changes this a little bit. Like, will that somehow be a massive deflationary force that, that we'll all get this wrong because of what AI is going to be able to do? I, you know, I, I don't know the answers to any of this, but it's, it's just very, very hard to predict. So I was just compiling our year-to-date performance on the portfolios that we run for clients. And included in that, you know, we have different indexes. So the S&P some Russell indices, the MSCI. And so the S&P through September 30th is up basically 13, a little over 13% the year through the third quarter. Um, Russell 2,500 down 3.6%. I think the S&P equal weight is actually now negative for the year. I believe the Dow is down for the year. So you know, that's a pretty big divergence. You have the S&P market cap weighted index, which as we know is heavily weighted towards tech, you know, up 13% this year. And then you have underneath the surface, you actually have, you know, a lot of things that are flat, if not down. Um, and I think Matt, you were kind of pointing out too, that, you know, there's been some weakness in utilities and other areas of the market that, you know, maybe investors were, I mean, I guess with higher rates, utilities, it kind of makes sense that they get pressured. But it, the overall point is, is that like, you know, they're, the leadership got very narrow and then August and September, you know, were pretty bad months for the market and sort of for your average stock. And I think that just creates some pain and worry, you know, investors, you know, depending on how you're allocated, if you're allocated to the S&P, you're probably fine. If you're, you know, invested in, you know, equal weighted portfolios or small and mid caps, you know, performance has dropped off quite a bit. So I don't know. What do you guys, do you guys have any thoughts on sort of what, not necessarily what that might mean, but how investors might want to be thinking about that type of thing in their portfolios? I guess got a couple of things. One is, it, it was interesting to me, and I forget where the data is. I'll see if I can find it. Like this idea of when you have this really narrow leadership in the market, what does it mean going forward? And the conclusion wasn't as strong as I thought. Like, you know, the idea is if, if the leadership's very narrow, then eventually, you know, most people think those stocks are going to come down with all the other stocks. But it's, it's not really, it, it kind of is a mixed bag in terms of, you know, sometimes that happens and then all the other stocks come up with the big leaders and sometimes it goes the other way. So I don't know that there's a huge conclusion to draw on that part. But in terms of like the way we invest, I mean, for, for if you take the behavioral part out of it, the opportunity set got a lot better. I mean, you know, we're, we're factor investors. So when market cap is all that's working, you know, and we're using things like value, I mean, the expected returns on our stuff goes up. But again, going back to what I said before with international stocks, they, the expected returns only go up if you can sit here and endure it. Um, and so for some clients, that doesn't really matter that much because if you can't endure this type of strategy underperforming, then it doesn't matter that your future expected returns are better. So yeah, I mean, I think it increases the opportunity set. I, th I think it's really interesting. Um, you know, I, I like following the technicians that are talking about breadth and stuff and, and understanding it better. But I don't know that there's too much of a conclusion I can draw from it. I don't know, Matt, what do you think? Yeah, follow the technicians, follow the people who track sentiment and stuff like that. I, I think, and it's a big topic of conversation, you know, coming into the year, there was a lot of confidence in a recession. I think a lot of what we probably just saw, you know, Monday morning quarterbacking this whole thing here is basically a recession trade that got, put on exasperated under the banking crisis at the beginning of the year. That feels like a lifetime ago. That was February of this year that banks were collapsing and my grandmother's texting me. That's 
yesterday in the grand scheme of history here. So we have this giant recession trade. Everybody piles into apparently into like seven stocks, that whole magnificent seven thing. And your regular stocks have languished. And I think that's, that this is just evidence of like where we are and why you have to step back, have a policy portfolio, follow strategies like what you just like, like have rules, have systems, have things in place for how you're going to deal with this. It was a really friggin' weird year. And the reality is like the opportunity set has to get better when breadth gets this narrow and stuff gets this, this screwed up. The real question, whether it's in the duration of our bond portfolios or where we're investing in stocks is you got this window. And if we're moving towards soft landing or whatever, I think this is part of what got people so screwed up this year is there's a window. I think it's Warren Pies, I think is the one I saw this from. I think it's seven months on average. Like if we're going to have a soft landing, it's a seven month spread between basically the last hike and the first rate cut. And you remember how the market thought there was going to be cuts by like this time, mm -hmm. I don't know, six, seven months ago. <laughs> mm -hmm. Like it didn't happen. And so now we're rolling that forward and we're looking at like, okay, so first quarter of next year. So this like guess the recession game, a higher number of people and participants still like we have a very high confidence read in recession, which is the, also the fun thing here. People are so confident in a recession that now they've been wrong for an extended period of time and you still got to redirect those portfolios. So there's some massively weird dislocations having in this market, whether it's in utilities or small caps or equal weight. And it's going to get resolved at some point one way or another. It's just to what new extreme are we careening to from this very strange part away from average? What I thought was interesting too, Justin, I don't know if you remember this from the Steve Romick interview, but you know, these tech, these big tech names have kind of become the flight to quality names now. Um, you know, that was the recession trade, right? Like, people, yeah, right. And so like, what was interesting, we interviewed Steve Romick for the podcast. He was talking about this and he was talking about his evolution of a, as a value investor. And he's kind of said like his protection, like his margin of safety now doesn't come from the balance sheet anymore. He sees it as coming from the quality of the business. Like that's what he wants to protect himself with. And so that, that, that kind of leads to investing in, you know, he owns Google and some of those names. I mean, that kind of leads to maybe people investing in those types of names when there's a lot of uncertainty, because those are, those are pretty consistent, you know, cash generating businesses. So I, I could see kind of people when, when you have, when you have this light to quality going towards those names now. And I don't think it's just quality. I think it's when growth is scarce, the value of any of that, which is scarce grows up or goes up. So the scarce asset gets a higher valuation growth became the scarce asset or idea or factor or whatever over these last few months, because we thought growth is going to compress. We're going to have a recession. We're going to have a slowdown and all this stuff. And that quality and growth mix drove seven names through the friggin' stratosphere and everybody else languished. And now it's just a question of like, what does this look like going forward? Soft landing, hard landing, no landing, all the terms are back on the table, but you got to adapt. You got to evolve. You got to have your mind open to different scenarios playing out. Yeah. I feel like too, coming off of COVID, you know, we had a couple strong years for the market and, you know, obviously we, the market declined a lot during COVID and then kind of bottomed, it came rip, rip, ripping back. But then, you know, it was 2021 and 20, uh, no, 2020, 2021 were, you know, obviously good years. And I, I, I at the time, I was thinking to myself, like, are we pulling returns? I mean, the market gave you those returns, but were we pulling future returns forward more? And then, you know, with 2022, we obviously saw the decline in the market, um, bear market territory. And then coming into this year, you know, to your point, Matt, you had a lot of people very negatively positioned, which actually ended up up until when the banks sort of started having problems was for your average stock the average stock was doing very well. And then sort of, you know, we went down a little bit and then we started coming back. And then, you know, more recently, last few months, it's been a little painful. And I don't know if it might tie back to maybe some of the stuff we were talking earlier, like is the marginal buyer now collectively questioning, well, I can get five, you know, 5% on short-term bonds. You know, why put that money in the market? That's, you know, a decision that This people, is the beginning- this is the beginning of our conversation this is where you started exactly. us and like rebalancing. Cause it's like now my tech stocks went through the roof. If I'm rebalancing because Nvidia finally took a break from all new, you know, all time highs. Now my decision is, do I take some profits off the table? And we're seeing this in the flow trends 
retail hasn't done this to the same degree as institutional, but um, do I take it away? Do I sell some of my big tech, big cap tech that's done so well? And do I actually go, do I go buy energy or utilities or whatever else? Or am I going to cash bonds money market? And depending on the allocators and depending on the way these flows revert as we move into the end of the year here, I think that'll be really interesting to see which way this plays out. We, I have thoughts, but what do you guys think? New rotation, exciting stuff. You want to make some ballsy calls? <laughs> I don't. Uh, every every time I've done that in my career, it hasn't worked out. I mean, my uh, <laughs> my, my macro predict, uh, prediction article in the beginning of the year called for 5% mortgage rates by the end of the year. So uh, as you can see, that's go that's going well for me. Is your bank offering those? Can I get one? <laughs> oh. <laughs> I wish that. I wish some bank would offer me that right now, but I uh, know. Or I guess most people are locked in at 3%, so I don't even care. But uh, eventually, and I guess I know that's one of the things you want to talk about here as we go to the end here, Justin, with this whole housing situation. Um, with playing out there because that, that's really interesting as well. Yeah, I mean, I think I think with real estate and housing, there's obviously two different things going on. I'll, I'll be interested in your comments here. I mean, we know that mortgage rates are very high or much higher than they've been in a long time. And so, you know, people are less likely to or reluctant to borrow. There's not a lot of supply on the market. So prices have stayed up. Mortgage rates have stayed high. Buying a home has gotten a lot more expensive and probably affecting, you know, the first time home buyer quite significantly in most markets because, you know, a lot of people basically can't afford houses. Um, that's one thing. And then on the other thing, on more of the commercial or I guess the real estate investing side, you know, one of the things that we, we have some good friends that have, you know, been pretty successful and are pretty successful real estate investors and have been through different cycles and stuff. And, you know, they're sort of thinking we're just at the beginning of what's going to be, you know, big problems in in real estate for anybody that's really bought in the last five years that has, you know, these adjustable or adjustable rate type of financing situations, um, because they're going to have to, when they refinance, they're going to be refinancing at a much higher cost than they bought when things were, were pretty expensive. So, you know, two different dynamics, but two different big parts of the market. You know, I don't know how much of that's reflected in prices already, um, or what's going to happen, but those are things that I think are also on investors' minds. Yeah, and like a lot of the stuff you've been talking about, like the, the real estate investors we know that we're talking to, probably the, the area they think is the least risk of major problems is residential because residential is where you've got the fixed rates, you know, everybody's locked into. Like a lot of this other stuff, you know, where you've got investors involved and you've got variable rates and you've got refinancing. And, you know, that seems to be, you know, an area where the areas where there's, there's more risk. But it's interesting. I mean, we've never seen anything like this. You know, I don't know how to, you know, I didn't realize like, until until I saw it happening that, you know, because people aren't going to sell, you know, that have their 3% mortgages, we're not going to have any supply. And so it's going to stay up. And, you know, like in the area I'm in, you've got enough cash buyers right now that are able to deal with that supply. And so prices continue to be really, really strong and they continue to go up. And so how long that lasts, I don't know. Or I don't even know what happens. Like I was thinking through myself as a thought experiment, like what happens if rates go back to 5% now? Because you'd think that would be good for the housing market, but we're also going to unlock a boatload of supply probably at that point. Like a bunch of people who haven't been selling, who want, want to be able to, are now going to, you know, are now going to sell. Or like the difference between three and five is going to be enough that they're going to be willing to maybe eat that. Whereas the difference between three and seven and a half, they were not willing to. So I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm terrible at this stuff, but it, it's a really interesting dynamic that I never thought we'd see. Price changes at the margin, and it's always going to be a function of who's buying and who's selling. And, and with real estate, with long-term assets, who's selling becomes the really important issue. And that's what's going to determine it here. Most people who are like in their houses, if they have that low rate, the incentive to sell and go buy something else is relatively low. That keeps supply down for residential. And if you have a commercial building or something and nobody came back to work post-COVID, uh, you might be selling, but into a much lower uh, bidding buyer for that piece of property. And that's that's a real problem too. And Further complicated as we talk to some of like the REITs and some of the other managers in that space, like there's a crazy discount between REITs and their NAVs right now going on that's starting to get extra weird. But inside of this too, it's like, what are the sources of capital for each of these things? These evergreen REIT funds and some of the private equity and some of the other stuff that's been, that did a lot of commercial stuff. That's, that's a real challenge on where the financing came from for these properties, how it's all going to work out what the money is that's going to impact who the, who the marginal buyer is um, and the marginal seller. So I think that's the other part that makes this so hard to predict. Where the change is going to happen 
is a function of where prices are going to have some challenge clearing and reset to where they're going to clear. And if that is resetting lower instead of higher for the first time in a while, we might be looking at some type of weird domino effect, not to say a doom and gloom scenario, but like a weird domino effect. When stuff gets weird, what has to get marked to market where and how does that ripple through the rest of the system? Should I bury some gold in my backyard or something? Or uh, what do you think, Matt? Oh, I mean, if you haven't already, uh, I've got these Folgers coffee cans. <laughs> and I stuff them with. <laughs> yeah, that's a good strategy. Part of that policy portfolio, bury that gold in the backyard. <laughs> Heard it here first. Well, I mean, you know, we talked about a lot of things that are sort of outside, I think, the normal themes or, I guess, discussions for this podcast, but probably to bring it all back full circle is, you know, a lot of this, no one really knows the answer, the outcome, the result of what's going to happen in the market or different asset classes at, because of this stuff, which just drives home the importance of having that policy portfolio, having an advisor you trust, being able to talk to and get advice from someone during like the points in the market, maybe even like this year where, you know, your portfolio hasn't done much or maybe it hasn't done much over the past two years, but it doesn't mean you should be abandoning stocks or making huge changes to your asset allocation. I think, you know, talking to someone about that and the pluses and minuses of those decisions probably can only be helpful. So that's probably the best way to, I think, conclude, wrap up this discussion around all these different points. For all of us, like we are all here because we believe as financial professionals who work with clients that we believe everyone should have a plan and a policy portfolio. <laughs> like get those two things together It's you, and it's unique to you because even that real estate point from at the end, you might own commercial real estate, you might own residential real estate, you might only rent, but all these things impact you. And if you have your own plan, your own policy portfolio, now at least you have the base variables gathered to start to have the context to make good decisions. That's, that's why it's worth having these discussions even into these far-reaching quarters of obscurity because we're all dealing with clients who have questions about this stuff all day, every day. Great, thank you guys for watching. We'll see you next time. Hi guys, this is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at practicalquant. You can follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carbono and follow Matt on Twitter at, at Cultish Creative. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. Also, if you have any ideas for topics you'd like us to cover in the future, please email us at excessreturnspod at gmail.com. We would like this to be a listener-driven podcast and would appreciate any suggestions. Thank you.